I love to sing. I don't know about you. My favourite places are in the car when I'm by myself or in the shower. You see, the thing is, I'm not very good at singing. As long as there's only a small range of notes, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty reasonable. But once they go a bit high or a bit low, you could say my singing becomes a bit wobbly. Um, I'm better, though, when there are people around me singing. If there are people around me who are singing well, I can usually mimic them and, and sing pretty well with them. But when people are off key and they're singing around me and I can hear them, can I just say that in that case, for the sake of others around me, that lip syncing is probably the preferred option. I love hearing people sing and their voices bring me great pleasure. My favourite singing is when there's two or more people together who are singing, good singers in particular, like we have at church every single time, well, most of the time. I'll leave it up to you to think about what, what the truth is there. My favourite singing is when you get a wonderful group of good singers together. I think of great singing duos that I've heard, like the Everly Brothers, Simon Garfunkel, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Pentatonics. You think of people that you know, the, the names go on and on. I also think of the wonderful choirs singing incredible things like the Hallelujah Chorus. When I think of these, I think of people singing together in harmony, in unity. You see, the group becomes one. The voices, even though they sing different words or even different tunes, blend beautifully because this is what they were meant to do, to make a beautiful sound. The music is written this way so that the voices can come together. And together, they make harmony. They make something beautiful, something exquisite. They have harmony, a unity of purpose and of outcome. And unity is the key theme of the prayer that we see today in this passage. This prayer is an extensive prayer. It's a whole chapter. It's an extravagant prayer. And it focuses on being one. So as we come to this passage, let's consider where we're up to in John's Gospel. Chapters 14 to 17 are where Jesus is preparing for his departure because he will soon be arrested and killed. He wants his disciples to be ready for this time. He warns them about what will come and he tries to calm their hearts. He tells them to trust him. He tells them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He tells them that the world will hate them, but he will send the Holy Spirit to be with them. And last week's passage finished with Jesus telling his disciples to take heart because he has overcome the world. Now Jesus, just before he's about to be betrayed, is in front of his disciples and he turns to his father in prayer. This prayer is the entirety of chapter 17. This prayer, as I've said, is extensive. This is a prayer that he wants his disciples to hear. I'm going to consider the prayer in three sections. We'll start by looking at verses 1 to 5. But before we actually look at that in detail, I want you to think about something. Have any of you ever heard of Bobby Fischer? 
Some of the older people here, like myself, might remember the name. He was actually a world champion chess player. Now, I know that chess isn't necessarily the most famous sport on TV or whatever, but this guy was a genius. At the age of 15, he became what was then the youngest grandmaster of chess. But he was probably best known because in 1972, Bobby Fischer from the United States took on Boris Spassky of the USSR, the Americans versus the Soviets. This was huge at the height of the Cold War. And he won and became world champion. Now, Fischer was not your textbook chess player. He always tried to be several moves ahead, like other people. But he tried to do the unexpected. You couldn't really pick what he was going to do. And the classic example of this was in a game that he took part in in 1956. This was called the game of the century. His opponent was vastly more experienced than him. Donald Byrne was a wonderful chess player who at the age of 26 was twice the age of Fisher. Yes, Bobby Fisher was 13 playing in a major championship. And this match stood out because Fisher did the unexpected. You see, in chess, the goal is really to protect your king and to try and get to a position where you can take your opponent's king. And you use all of your pieces to do that. But the most powerful piece, the most important piece that you use, is the queen. This is the piece that you don't want to lose. This is the piece that will help you to win. The thing is that out of the blue in this game, Fisher exposed his queen. And Burns saw this and thought, right, I will take the queen. This means that I will defeat Fisher. This was the obvious ploy. What he didn't realise is that Fisher had thought ahead and that by sacrificing his most important piece, he'd actually opened up Burns' defences and was able to defeat him. What seemed like surefire defeat was actually a path to victory and glory. To achieve victory, a sacrifice had to be made. What was counterintuitive was in fact glorious. A glory that comes out of sacrifice is what we see in verses 1 to 5. In verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The hour has come. In John's Gospel, whenever you hear the reference to the hour, you are talking about the time of Jesus' death. The time of his death is at hand. He will be publicly humiliated, tortured and killed. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of what seems like the most humiliating death, in the midst of what seems like the most complete defeat, Jesus speaks of glory. You see, glory is wrapped up in what happens at the cross. Jesus prays about glory at the cross because this is where God's character will be most clearly seen. This is the time when the Father will be glorified by the Son's obedience. This is the time when the greatest act of love possible takes place. 
This is the time when God's righteous wrath is satisfied through Christ's death. This is the time when the Son will be glorified by redeeming or buying back the people the Father has given to him through pain for their sins with his life. This is the time when love wins over sin and death. Through this one act, God's holiness and his love meet and are displayed in equal measure. Jesus has been obedient and has completed the work that he has come to do. God's character is revealed and he is glorified. This is what will happen on the cross. But the disciples don't understand this, at least not yet. Hence the need for Jesus to teach them, and he chooses to do this in such a personal way through letting them hear him pray to his heavenly Father. They're present, and they hear his heartfelt words as he prays. You see, now the cross, we change from being seen as a a sign of death and defeat to a sign of Jesus' glory, the glory that he gives back to the Father. Jesus has come for this moment so that he might give eternal life to his people. And what is eternal life? Verse 3 tells us, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing the Father and the Son. It is not just knowing about them, but it is intimately having a relationship with them. It's knowing them personally in the deepest possible way. It's about growing closer to them and being more intimately connected with them. It's about being adopted into God's family. It is unity with them. And this theme of unity continues as we go into the next part of the prayer in verses 6 to 19. Jesus now prays in this section for his disciples, for the chosen 12. He says in verse 7, They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed you sent me. You see, these are the people who have lived with Jesus. These are the people who have heard him teach. These are the people who have seen the miracles. These are the people who believe that Jesus was God's messenger. These are the people who have followed him. These are the people whom the Father has given the Son. The people who have been chosen out of the world to go into the world and to share the word of God. Jesus loves them. And so what does he do? What does he pray for? He prays for their protection. But surprisingly, it's not a protection from suffering and persecution. Rather, it's a protection for them to remain faithful, to remain God's people. By the power of God's name, by his authority, he prays for them to be protected. Just as Jesus revealed the Father in his character, so he wants the disciples to be protected and to be drawn into that character, to be sanctified. And all of them will be protected, except the one 
Judas, the one who is destined to betray Jesus. But notice, the big theme of this prayer comes through strongly once again, the theme of unity. In verse 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. The purpose of the protection is unity. Just as the Father and the Son are one in character, one in purpose, one in love, one in glory, so Jesus prays that the disciples might be unified in coming under the name and authority of God. It's not just a matter of being put together. They must be one. One in purpose, love and service. The disciples must be united together and united with the Lord as they will work together in the face of extreme opposition and persecution to take the gospel to the world. A world that they are in, but a world that they are no longer united with. A world of selfishness and greed, of hatred and violence, lusting and thieving. Rankin Wilborn describes this unity with Christ in a beautiful way. He describes it as an anchor and an engine. He puts it well when he says, you in Christ gives you an assurance. Christ in you gives you power. You see, being in Christ protects you. It gives you an anchor for your faith and an assurance and a hope for eternity. Having Christ in you means that you are empowered to live your life for him. It's like an engine that drives you on through the joys and the trials of your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you to give you this power, the power to soldier on and to flourish. So just as the Father and the Son are one, so the disciples are to be one. And just as the Son is leaving, he will empower them by sending his Spirit. God will not only be with them, but he will be within them all of the time. The Spirit will guide them. The Spirit will sanctify them and draw them closer to God through his word, the word of truth. The Spirit will protect their hearts and strengthen them in the face of the opposition of the world. In verse 16, Jesus says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They will remain in him. They will remain one with Jesus and be his people. And while they are being sent into a world that hates them, they will be filled with the joy of knowing God and the hope of eternal life. They will be one with each other and one with God. It seems funny when we talk about this group of people, the 12 who Jesus has called to be his own. Friedrich von Schiller once said, even the weak become strong when they are united. Even this ragtag bunch of fishermen and misfits becomes unstoppable when they are united with Christ. This rough bunch will be the ones who take the most important message ever out into the world, 
the world the message of salvation through Christ Jesus. In being one with Christ, the world is overcome. We see the final part of the prayer in verses 20 to 26, and here Jesus changes the focus from being on those 12 disciples to the harvest field that is the world. And once again, the theme is unity. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here we see Jesus praying for his people as they are called out of the world. Those who will hear the word and respond. It's the next generation of believers and the generation after that and all the generations to come, including people like you and me. We are the ones whom Jesus is praying for here. And what does he pray for? Unity. He prays that we, the church, might be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And this is not a unity where we are all identical clones of one another, but rather it's a unity that is rich in complementary diversity, a diversity of skills and gifts, of different personalities, but a unity or a harmony of purpose. Just like the harmony of that massed choir that I was mentioning before, so the body of Christ works as one with Christ as the head. In verse 23, Jesus prays that we might believe in him and see his glory so that we may be brought to complete unity. And this unity then becomes a witness so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As people who have been called to be God's own, we are joyful, we are protected and we are loved. And it is this that the world will see. Remember back in chapter 13 of John's Gospel that Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Christians are not only chosen by God, but we are redeemed, we are sanctified and display love for others because God first loved us. We shine forth love to others as we see love displayed within and from God. This is not a warm, fuzzy, wishy-washy, airy-fairy love. It is agape love. It's the love of self-sacrifice. It's the love that seeks the eternal best for the other, no matter what the cost to self. It's the love that's personified in Jesus. It's the love that makes the cross the moment of glory. Jesus' prayer concludes in verses 25 and 26. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. Through Christ, the Father has been made known to us. Through Christ, love has been made known to us. Through Christ, 
we see what true humanity is all about. The great Enlightenment thinker Blaise Pascal once said, not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we not only have God revealed, we also have true humanity revealed. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And in him, we become more fully human. So what then can we take away from this passage that we see? The key theme has been unity, being one with all of God's people by being in Christ. This should be the thing that defines us more than anything else. It's more important than whether we're male or female, whether we're old or young. It's more important than race or strength or wealth or health or height or skill or anything else. What defines us and sets us apart is that we are no longer in the world. We are no longer, sorry, of the world. But we are Christians. We are in Christ. And in Christ... We become who we are made to be. Back in 1991, I had the pleasure of going to Europe for three months. You know, the, the pilgrimage that so many people do. I saw lots of wonderful things, the Eiffel Tower, the Colosseum, Westminster Abbey and so on. But what stood out to me more than anything else was a four metre high statue that I saw in Florence in Italy. From one block of marble, Michelangelo had carved the most incredible likeness of a human in the form of the statue of David. It was beautiful. I just remember standing there in awe, walking around, because it's actually raised up above you, so you're looking up at this thing that seems to be the centre of this whole room. You slowly walk around it and you notice the detail, the incredible detail. You see the eyes, the hair, even the veins on the arms. You, you're able to come up so close to it and it was as close to perfection as I'd ever seen in something that was man-made. And yet, tragically, six months after I'd been there, someone had come in with a hammer and smashed a toe off the statue. They destroyed this image that was perfect. Fortunately, however, master craftsmen were able to get all the pieces and to repair the damage to the statue. They'd been able to put it back to the way that it was meant to be. And so now the public can go and see David in all his glory, except perhaps a little bit further back than what they were before. And you see, this is a lot like us. God made us perfect. He made us in his image. And yet sin distorts and destroys our image. However, when we come to Christ to be one with him, the master craftsman, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us to sanctify us and to renew us. Paul expresses this beautifully in Ephesians 2 when he calls us God's workmanship. When we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we are being made into who we should be. And when we are in Christ, 
we are one with each other. So now we need to pose just a few questions to finish off. Firstly, are you in Christ? If you are, then what difference has it made in your life? Are you in unity with one another, with your Christian brothers and sisters? We know we must be. We need to keep meeting together. We need to keep praying for each other. We need to keep serving each other. We need to keep loving each other. We need to keep helping each other turn back to God. We need to keep spending time in God's word together. We need unity to be one with each other. Take the time this week, along with me, to think about what it means to be in Christ and give thanks, love and glory back to the Father who gave you to the Son. May you reflect upon this and gain a greater understanding of what it means to be in Christ, what we have learned from this extravagant prayer.